Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome to season two, episode three of Breaking the Surface. Um, I'm here with Taylor and Anthony remotely today. Uh, everyone's healthy, thankfully, but uh, we had a kind of ice storm come in overnight here in Northern Michigan. So all the roads are a sheet of ice. It's pretty dangerous out on the roads today. So we're going to record via Zoom. And uh, we're going to talk about a couple hot topics that are in the news right now that I think kind of have a common theme, which is the idea of free speech, um, how speech should be regulated. We've touched on aspects of this uh, discussion before. We've had a conversation in the past, I think, on the show about cancel culture um, and some conversations. But there's a couple things that are in the news that are more recent that I think we could dive into, one of which is this controversy with Joe Rogan and Spotify. Um, and, and we've had some artists boycotting Spotify because of this and what he should be allowed or not allowed to say on that platform. Um, to me, I think the other issues that are kind of have been on my radar because they're concerning to me would be um, kind of a resurgence in book bannings, school boards banning certain books from being in libraries or curriculum. We've even seen some book fires happening. Um, and then also a lot of legislative action. I think up to 37 states right now have some form of pending or past legislation, limiting classroom topics. So limiting teachers from being able to talk about things like uh, race, uh, sexual uh, identity, gender identity. Um, so all of those are kind of, to me, related to this issue of, of speech and how we decide what speech is appropriate, what speech is allowed. So um, I wanted to start with Joe Rogan. I know uh, Taylor and I, I think, have messaged back and forth occasionally when things have come up on Joe Rogan's podcast. Uh, a lot of it, which has to do with vaccinations, um, but more recently, he's also, you know, people have uncovered a lot of his episodes where there's problematic issues about race. He uses the N-word quite a bit. Um, so he's gone through kind of a lot of controversy. And I thought maybe I would just start out um, asking both of you what you have been following about that um, episode and if you have any kind of initial thoughts about what's going on with Joe Rogan. Yeah, I actually um, had discussed a little bit of Joe about Joe Rogan on my recent episode on the Cold Shower podcast with a local doctor here. And it was really fascinating because I wanted to get his take on Joe Rogan and some of the conversations he'd had surrounding um, COVID. And what he said is that as a, a trained medical professional, that he listened to a couple of those episodes around COVID where he was, Rogan was bringing um, doctors of some kind on and they were talking about vaccines and, and maybe some of the issues with vaccination or what they thought were issues. And he himself was like, after I heard and listened to the entire three hour episode, I was like, oh crap, is everything I know about vaccines wrong? And so <laughs> he had to, as a, as a trained medical professional, then go back and 
seek to fact check some of the things that were being discussed on that. And so what I found interesting about that is that here's this person who um, is obviously very intelligent. And even he had some seeds of doubt planted by this discourse that was taking place on Rogan's podcast. And what it led me to kind of to where I guess I'm landing with Rogan, and this is separate from some of the revelations that have come out about his use of the N-word and in the racist conversations that he'd had in the past, which I do think a lot of people uh, were aware of well before this or should have been. I mean, they've been they were recorded conversations and they've been up for a long time. But um, this is separate from that is that to me, it just really puts a lot of responsibility on the listeners of Rogan to be responsible listeners. And part of the dialogue that I went into on my show was that um, Rogan is someone who has sway over the culture in a way that I I haven't seen. I mean, it's it's almost incomparable to even uh, Fox News and CNN, where his reach is three times larger than even the most popular hosts on those shows. And what he says, even if it's out of curiosity, um, can be considered as news to a lot of people. And even if it's a small percentage of people who um, will take his curiosity, as he would like to frame it, um, and act on some of those curiosities, uh, a, even a small percentage of a listenership of 11 million people per episode can cause some problems in the culture. And so I just think that we have to we have to be responsible. And my challenge to people was if someone like Joe Rogan is putting out 12 to 15 hours of content each week, and you're listening to every single one of those hours, please tell me how you're not allowing 12 to 15 hours of content to influence how you're viewing the world. I I understand that people will think that they can still um, formulate their own thoughts and have their own opinions. and, And I think that in some ways that is true, but personally for myself, there is nothing that I allow into my life for that large a chunk of time per week that doesn't impact the way that I see things. And I think that that's, that's my caution for people uh, about somebody like Joe Rogan, where even if it's just a curiosity, uh, we have to be careful that we're not just adopting every one of his uh, curiosities or his skepticisms about the world or these opinions that people are bringing onto his show as guests. It's like having a halftime job listening to Joe Rogan, right? There's, there's almost no way it doesn't have a remarkable influence on how we see the world. Something I was thinking of Beth and Taylor, as you were talking is that when it comes to the question of what Spotify does, I think Spotify is a private company and it can do it at once. Uh, And in, in fact, I would note, I think there's many ways in which even those who are objecting to his quote unquote cancellation are front and center making this happen other places, like telling schools what can and can't be taught or removing a book like Mouse. I hope I pronounced that properly. Um, They have no problem saying, so let's go with the whole idea of critical race theory. They have no problem saying there are times when people, we think people should not be allowed to say certain things because they're wrong and they influence how people see the world in a way that is not only false, but unhelpful. So very comfortable seeing that happen over there. Well, that's the argument against Joe Rogan. I mean, it's the same argument just from different people. And so one of the things I wish I could see more consistently in culture is just the pursuit of consistency. If you're going to take a stand, take the stand on behalf of everyone. It's one thing I I like about um, the ACLU and that it surprises me sometimes and that it's considered a fairly liberal organization. They have no problem defending conservative groups when they see the same kind of 
what they would see as injustice being done to them. And that, if I have any frustration from the Joe Rogan controversy, it's just that I wish people would be consistent. Yeah. And I think speaking of consistency, I mean, Spotify is in a, a, a difficult situation here, but they have also had a lot of problems being consistent in their response to the situation. So for example, you know, they put out a statement and the CEO talked to, uh, put out a memo to his staff over the weekend uh, of Spotify, apologizing for putting them in this position. They're, you know, they've been under an enormous amount of public pressure. You have major artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell pulling their music from Spotify. Other artists have also followed suit. Other podcasts have followed suit. Um, and so, you know, they he put out the statement apologizing that they were in this awkward situation, but also saying that they weren't going to censor, you know, Joe Rogan. They weren't going to sort of limit his speech. But they have. They've pulled over 100 of his past episodes in which he said the N-word on the episode or had some really problematic conversations about race. They just quietly pulled that after this controversy started. So they were willing to selectively go in and pull out some of his past episodes. I mean, again, over 100. So quite a few. We're not talking about one or two. Um, but not uh, do that for uh, the vaccination conversations. And I think, you know, I've been struggling with this so much. And it's one of the reasons I want to talk about it with you guys, because anytime I'm having a hard time thinking through something, talking with you guys usually helps. Um, and to be kind of address my own inconsistencies and my own thinking. But I did calm down. I think, Anthony, ultimately, I've, I found some resolution internally about this um, because I'm so pro- I'm so troubled by the book bannings and the classroom conversations but I also don't have a problem with like Joe Rogan being canceled. So I had to like think through that. Like, is that really fair? And is that consistent in my thinking? I think one thing I did come down is, is an important distinction that you just made, Anthony, which is the difference between public and private Mm -hmm. uh, spheres of society. So Spotify, I believe should have the uh, legal and I guess cultural right to give a hundred million dollars to Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. He's clearly a divisive figure who's going to bring in a ton of traffic for them. So he's making them money. They're a private business. They can do that. I also think because it's a private company that consumers and artists have an equal freedom to use their dollars or their talent or their product to push back against that platform. So if they're not happy with Spotify giving Joe Rogan $100 million, they're free to pull their music. They don't have to be featured on that platform. Uh, we as consumers don't have to subscribe to Spotify. Um, and I think that's a healthy market regulation of a private company that you're mm-hmm. going to make decisions as a private company and your consumers and other artists are going to let you know how they feel about it. So I actually think all of that is healthy. I don't have a problem with the pushback against Joe. The thing about Joe Rogan is even if he were to be booted off Spotify, he's not going to lose his cultural influence. He could put his podcast up on his website. He could get sponsored. I mean, he's got a, a platform now and a voice that's not going anywhere. Um, so if Spotify decides at the end of the day, it's too costly to them to continue carrying Joe Rogan versus the bottom line that they're getting out of having him, they'll make that as a calculated economic decision. I don't think they're going to cave culturally one way or another. But I would love to also then pivot and talk to you guys about the the book bannings and the classroom discussions, um, especially, you know, Taylor, with your background as a social worker and Anthony, your background in education. I was really curious to talk about this. So you mentioned Mouse that was banned by 
a school board um, from being allowed in, in school districts. It then subsequently shot up to the number one book on Amazon in the country. So most bannings are usually counterproductive. Yeah. So maybe again, there's some entering interesting intersection of public and private there. But I do have a, a much harder time with public institutions, whether they're school boards, whether they're legislators, um, making you know, censorship decisions that limit the ability of anyone in a particular public sphere to access materials. And I thought maybe, Anthony, I would love to get your thoughts, um, having been on the school board, having been a teacher, about, I guess, weighing the balance between appropriate materials Mm -hmm. for children on sensitive topics, but also not understanding that because of the variety of maturity levels within students, how do you accommodate that without limiting all students from having access to materials on things like the Holocaust or slavery that are important? Uh, that's a really good question, Beth. Um, it is one of the dilemmas of teaching, and this could be in a public or a private school. You're trying to cover topics in a way that is age appropriate. Um, and obviously kids, especially at that age, are growing and maturing in leaps and bounds from year to year. But also there could be vast differences within a classroom of where kids are at, where the families they come from, all those types of questions. Oh, classrooms and schools and school districts have always discriminated. So I actually prefer the language of discrimination versus banning to talk about this, because if a book is not used in a classroom, kids can typically go find it somewhere else. So just for the sake of clarity, um, all schools are discriminatory in what they use. Like they're going to choose to teach some novels and not some other novels. They're going to choose particular short stories and not other short stories. They can't do it all, right? So what a school is wrestling with is how do we find things? And and because, especially in our public school system, you are reaching a broad range of students. How do we find something that works to be applicable? So if you don't show Saving Private Ryan to fourth graders, nobody's going to complain, right? Um, They might argue that it's some type of history AP class when they're seniors. But I wouldn't be surprised once again if parents go, wow, that that is something I'd prefer to decide for kids on my own. Is there something out there that we can use besides that? Oh, okay. So you you try to find something else. Meanwhile, you could potentially have stuff available in your school library or make sure it's available in the local public library. So take mouse. I haven't read mouse. I don't know what would be considered its age appropriate level, but uh, let's just say they've said, you know what, we're not going to use it with this younger grade, but we will use it for seniors. Uh, okay. That would be one way to approach it. We're not trying to ignore the book. Uh, we just don't think it's appropriate yet. Or they could say, you know what, this material, and once again, I haven't read Mouse, so I'm just going to broaden this a little bit. This this is a lot for kids in school. We'd prefer that parents be able to decide, and you could send a recommended reading list home or a recommended movie list and just let let parents know as we're going through this, this is the stuff we're using. Uh, Let's say we're going to use To Kill a Mockingbird to try to address an issue of racism at a particular level. We would also recommend the following books to go along with this topic. You could even do things where you give homework assignments that allow students to choose based on recommendations from parents or friends or your local librarian, something like that. There's lots of ways to navigate it uh, that continues to give students access to material without making it seem like schools are 
mandated, like if you don't do this particular book, now you're participating in book banning. So I do have, I, I have some mixed feelings about it. And that I uh, like my understanding with mouse is that and some other things that are being questioned right now is this a pushback to critical race theory, uh, which I think gets very confused with simply studying history. Uh, so I have some opinions about that. But at the same time, I tend to be sympathetic towards schools who are trying to wrestle with how do we often approach or how do we approach topics that are often very hard to talk about. It could potentially be traumatizing if you're not careful. And I, I don't know, you guys know from talking with me, I prefer local authority and control more than I prefer. You know, the broader it gets, the less I like it. So I, I would, in theory, support the ability of local systems to be able to make that kind of call. I don't know. What do you think about that, Taylor and Beth? I don't, I, I think that that's really tough. Um, from what I'd seen, and, and Beth, you shared an article from NPR kind of outlining some of this stuff is that, um, it's just going to be such a difficult thing to maneuver through. And it seems like what these uh, districts and these legislative efforts are requesting from teachers is a sense of like perfection in the way that they're teaching or not teaching some of these buzzwords. Um, but the perfection isn't outlined for them. And so they're no matter how they approach it, um, mistakes are going to be made. And I'll use mistakes in quotes, mistakes in relation to how that specific district would like things to be taught. And so it puts teachers in a really uh, tough position because I'm not even sure that they're accurately defining what they want and don't want taught other than just using these really broad terms of don't teach about socialism, don't teach about Marxism, right. don't teach about critical race theory, even though critical race theory uh, is a graduate level uh, thing that people are taught. I have uh, family members who look at things through a critical race theory lens and she has her PhD and, and she's a professor and she looks at media and sports through a critical race theory lens. She did not learn that until she was getting her PhD degree. And I think that what makes this so sad and, and anybody who's paid attention and had concerns about this type of thing is that um, when they started bringing up critical race theory and how dangerous it was, it became really clear that their concern wasn't necessarily with critical race theory because very few could actually define what it was, but they just wanted to as quickly as possible throw anything that makes them uncomfortable under the umbrella of critical race theory. And then when they ban it, they'll call it critical race theory. Um, and that that's what's happened. So I think it puts teachers in a really, really tough position because uh, what if, what if a, a group of parents deems that a teacher was crossing a line and, and, and teaching about socialism and forgot to say that it's not in line with our foundations as a country, what happens to that teacher? And now we have things like hotlines that are being implemented in some states where teachers can be reported. And I think that they, it even said that there could be rewards given out for reporting um, findings like this. And um, what are we doing? Like, what are we actually doing to these teachers? It's already hard enough. And it's just, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating and it's lazy. It's lazy on behalf of the people who are trying to ban these books and ban these conversations because they never have once really been able to define what makes them so scared other than just say, we don't want anybody getting uncomfortable here and um, just trying to distance themselves as much as possible from what's uh, the actual reality and in terms of what took place in this country. It's really, really, really sad. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the conversation about critical race theory is is kind of the tip of the 
fear. I mean, that's the legislation that I've seen in the most states and it, it ranges wide, widely. I mean, some legislation in some states is very specific about what critical race theory is. It makes exceptions for talking about things like um, slavery or the civil rights movement. You know, it specifically carves out exceptions for those things or the, you know, Holocaust, whatever it might be. Um, but others is super, super vague, like you said, to the point where, you know, there's school districts in the South that are, we're entering Black History Month right now that are getting challenged about teaching anything to do with Black History Month. And that is where, you know, you do see teachers saying like, I just don't know if I can win. And to your point, Taylor, I mean, on top of everything that teachers have to deal with, with COVID and just generally being an underfunded, overworked profession, to have to have this, you know, seriously chilling effect of, you know, again, the legislation varies states to state, but in some states you can be personally sued by families if you teach any of this material. Your um, school district can lose its accreditation. Um, they have found a way, and this is interesting, just thinking about Anthony and some of his educational experience, but, you know, one way that private schools have been able to be exempt from some of this is that they're not usually subject to the same kind of oversight from the state as public schools are. So some of the legislators are now leaning on funding from the state to cut off any sort of um, state funding grants to private institutions if they don't also comply with some of these teaching requirements. Mm. So it just, to me, um, it's so overreaching. And I don't, in the language of some of these things, you know, for example, saying that if you're going to talk about any sort of political system, you have to present both sides of that system, which gets into really problematic territory when you're talking about something like fascism. Um, I just, I don't, I don't know how teachers are, are supposed to grapple with that. And I think Anthony, to your point, it's one thing if you're trying to decide like what um, materials are classroom appropriate. Maybe you'll teach one thing in fourth grade versus 12th grade about the Holocaust or slavery. Um, and I sometimes wonder if maybe, you know, teacher or parent choice is part of that discussion. Like when I went to public school, for example, you could have your parents exempt you from sex ed classes. So if you didn't want to, if your parents didn't want you learning about public school sex ed, you could go sit in the hallway with a book while that class happened. And so I sometimes wonder, like you said, if there's either like an option for certain materials to be exempted out or to offer a range of materials on a certain topic. So parents can sort of decide the appropriateness for their children. I do just wonder we seem to have in the US this idea that the primary instruction should come from parents, that they should be sort of setting the agenda for what their children learn. You don't see that as much as in educational systems in Europe and Asia, the state really decides what kids need to learn. And so they might decide, for example, in Germany, no, you don't have an option. You're, you're going to learn about World War II. You're going to learn about Nazism. Yeah. And, and how much here should we I guess I, I'm, I'm protective of parental freedom and, and influence in the family deciding what's appropriate for their kids. But if you're handing them off to another educational institution to, in, to educate them, how much control should you give them or keep for yourself? Oh, the, no, these are great tensions. Absolutely. And I say this as a parent and as a teacher. Um, so I, you know, I go to college for four years. I'm, I'm educated. I was a English education major. And so I covered particularly usually the controversy has to do with literature, right? And so um, I've had all the had all the training and the classics and the moderns and all this kind of stuff. And you know, there's there's a fairly well represented canon 
Um, well, no, okay, that's a whole different topic, but there, there is generally a lot of agreement on certain pieces of literature that capture certain eras or represent certain things. And what you're trying to actually create is a common cultural conversation so that as we interact with each other, we're pulling from a common place. I often talk about this with my students at NMC. This happened just again last week. We were talking about virtue ethics, and I gave the example of Captain America as uh, an icon of this in pop culture, and I get a room full of blank stares, mm. and not a one of them had seen a Captain America movie. To me, that's almost impossible. But uh, <laughs> part of what education tries to do, especially as culture gets more kind of fragmented and uh, diversity is great in many, many ways. But one thing it does in terms of access to the things that teach us is that we often don't have common experiences, things like TV shows and music and movies, water cooler kind of talk, right? Um, and so one thing a educational experience tries to do is create some type of common ground markers with people. And I get it. That's still hard, but you're, you're trying to create community. And I do think it's important that people who have been trained uh, to not just see the local place they're working, but try to tap into the broader experience of a culture, they, they have something important to offer and somehow balancing balancing that with parents being able to say at times, but there's particular things I'd like to be able to walk into more deeply with my child. Um, and what that tension is obviously is, is the heart of the discussion. What do you think, Taylor? Yeah, I guess an example I can kind of think of, or I can think of a couple. And as you mentioned, having uh, gone to school for social work, which is a, uh, I guess, notoriously liberal profession, um, is that I remember growing up and it was a bit of a point of contention in our home of, hey, wh what do we do in coming from a Christian home? What do we do in biology class when they start talking about evolution? And so I was fortunate enough to, to have parents that if they were concerned about, about that teaching, then they would have discussions with me afterwards. And we would figure out like, how does this stuff fit? How do you uh, maneuver through a class where maybe uh, your parents don't agree with everything that's taking place um, and that's being taught, but they never pulled me from those conversations. And I think um, the unfortunate reality is that not every parent uh, has the time or is even is capable of balancing all these conversations that might happen in school with their own kind of lived experiences and helping guide their child through some of these difficult conversations. And I think it's for that reason why you're going to see these, these legislative efforts to just just forfeit the conversations altogether so that parents aren't forced to have to do those things. And it's just going to be a, a big comfortable situation for everybody. Um, and then the other thing that I guess I just wanted to say and why it, why this scares me so much is that we were already doing a piss poor job of teaching about the history of racism in this country. Anyway, it was always, even though I went to a public school and so we didn't use the term sin, but the, it was always seen as an individual sin. And so as long as you and your own life can combat any racist tendencies that you have, then racism isn't going to exist in your, in your bubble. And Anthony did a great job outlining this in one of his sermons is just these, the implications of the history of racism. And especially from, you know, kind of some of these structures that have been in place and that, that word really bothers a lot of people. Um, but when you bring up, say, something like Black Wall Street, which I never heard a peep about ever 
And then you look at something like that and you, you actually learn about what took place and that there was this thriving community um, and, and, and these financial opportunities that black people had created for themselves. And then white people came along and, and bombed black wall street, lit it on fire. And that that isn't just something that the next day was, was gone. It, it had ramifications uh, for years and years and years. And, and that's just one example throughout our history as, as America of things that we've done. And so um, already doing a poor job in terms of, even if we discussed in high school, say uh, the history of, of slavery, it was always framed as these were individual people that were making poor individual choices. And we have moved well past that as opposed to helping students understand how some of these things are still impacting people today. Um, we're doing a major disservice. We already have been doing a disservice. And so to completely remove these conversations, including talks about, you know, some of the individual racism that takes place in the world is just going to, it's going to, it's so disheartening. And I really don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, Taylor, to follow up on that, you're right. We would say that about slavery, but I think the second part of the discussion was, but we have since then passed legislation that now um, it is illegal to discriminate, and therefore we have solved the problem. And that's the heart of the discussion, right? I just finished reading a book called Blood at the Root by Patrick Phillips. And it's a discussion of a, of a lynching at a, along with a terrible miscarriage of justice in 1912 in Forsyth County, Georgia. And one of the things that happened on the other side of this incident where several black men were accused of raping and killing a young white girl um, other than the lynching and then the trial, which was a travesty of the people that were hung as a result of that, that county um, started sending out night patrols. And within a matter of, I think, months, a year, maybe max, they had run all the black residents out of the county. And those black residents, they either sold their land at a terrific discount, like a quarter or a third of its worth, or they simply left. And the local white folks who were left would simply start to pay the taxes on the land and they got their land, their possessions and everything. And this was um, thousands of people. Uh, as late as the late 80s, early 90s, Forsyth was still technically an all white county. And in fact, part of what the book shows in 1987, which is the year that I graduated from high school, uh, there was kind of a, some buses went in to do a march for freedom. They were, in essence, chased out as mobs with signs supporting the KKK and white power were throwing bottles and rocks. I mean, they were fearful enough. Uh, I believe it was two busloads of people ended up cutting their march short and leaving and trying again a couple of years later. I mean, that was 1987. And by the 1990s, you finally begin to see a slow trickle of minority groups come back into the county. But one of the interesting things is all that land that was stolen in the 1912, 1913, it became suburbs of Atlanta that was worth an incredible amount of money. No reparations have ever been given. In fact, the county of Forsyth looked at it a while ago at all, and they agreed, yeah, we're not going to do it. And it's those kinds of stories that go throughout American history that are the things that right now, when it says, when someone says, I, I don't want critical race theory taught, they're often referring to that because it does implicate groups and structures and systems and all kinds of things like that. And if I have a, 
uh, if I would have a broader thing to go back to your points, just about um, both of you, what you're saying about that tension between educators should get to decide certain things versus parents. I think if we as a culture aren't committed to taking the, uh, the blindfold off and looking at who we have been and who we are, I mean, we're doomed. And that I think is, uh, I'm trying to come to grips with, or I'm trying to understand why is it we can't look back and see what happened. Um, it's not implicating us individually to look backwards. It is, however, asking us if there ought to be some implications of the cultures from which we have come. And if there are, are there steps we can take to try to make right what was made wrong? I'll give you another example. I was just reading about this week. Sorry, you've got me ranting now. We, we're obviously familiar with the Japanese internship in World War II. Um, but what I didn't know was that thousands of Japanese people were shipped to the United States from Central and Latin American countries to be used by the United States in prisoner exchange programs, where they would send them to Japan, where they had never lived, in exchange for people coming over. They, too, were put in internment camps. Well, in 19, uh, I forget what year it was, when legislation is passed to give the, U the United States citizens who were in those internship camps reparations. I think it was around $20,000 a person. Uh, initially, the people who were functionally kidnapped from other countries and brought here were given no reparations. Finally, years later, they agreed to give them a quarter of what they gave the other people, so $5,000 a person with no formal acknowledgement that wrong was done. Okay, that is part of our history. That was done structurally, like the government was involved in this and it has never been made right. And if we don't have a way as a culture to look that in the face and learn from it and do better next time, I, we're doomed. So yeah, Anthony, I mean, to those points, you know, a couple of things came up in my mind as you were talking, one of which is, I think I'm frustrated a lot by the immaturity, I guess I see in some of these conversations, the sort of cultural immaturity, the idea that we can't grapple with, you know, truthfully with our own past, that we're not willing to do that emotional work, um, which I think is just absolutely essential if you're going to move forward in any meaningful way as a country to sort of acknowledge what your country has done up until this point. How do you have these systems in place? How are they still being perpetuated today? simply not talking about race or like in the case of Florida legisl uh, legislation, not talking about any kind of sexual or gender identity issues when you clearly have gay kids in classroom, gay teachers in classrooms. Um, and you also have kids of color in classrooms. So, you know, this whole conversation we've been having today already is sort of revolving around the assumption that some of these topics are making parents and kids uncomfortable, but what parents and what kids? It's primarily white families who, or, or straight families, um, religious families, conservative families, whatever it might be, who don't wanna have these conversations. Meanwhile, you have black children in classrooms who are dealing with issues of race every day. They see it, they can't ignore it. Um, you have gay kids who are struggling with their identities and, you know, hopefully getting some support at home, but there's no, you know, they're going to an institution that can't even acknowledge their existence every day. 
I mean, that to me is really challenging. These things are baked into our country, you know, homophobia, racism, these issues aren't going away and simply not talking about them isn't going to make them disappear. Um, what it is going to do is going to make a lot of students feel erased or invisible. Um, it's also going to make students uh, who are in safer, I guess, identities like white or straight or Christian identities grow up even less prepared to deal with those issues in the real world, <laughs> you know? So it's not like your kid, just because they never hear anything about critical race theory or race in general in elementary or middle or high school, isn't going to experience those things in their whole life, you know? So you're just, you're not equipping them to handle things that are, are going to be real in their lives that are going to be present in society. And is the goal, I guess, of education I think there's a difference between, I guess, the reasons why someone is uncomfortable. So part of the reason I struggle with this is I do know the importance of like age appropriate materials. I might have talked about this before, but so I saw a, a horror movie when I was four years old. I saw Nightmare on Elm Street when I was four years old. Oh, I still, yes, I still <laughs> I had a very a bad babysitter. <laughs> I still have nightmares about that movie as an adult. Um, and so that movie really traumatized me seeing that young. And so now when I go to R-rated movies, like if I go see a horror movie or see something like Pulp Fiction, and I see children in the theater, it enrages me <laughs> simply because I know that that material can be very traumatic if it's not dealt with at, at the right age. Mm -hmm. So I'm acknowledging that reality, that there are certainly things that are, are challenging for children to deal with. To me, though, that like pop culture is a little bit different than education. And I think in an educational setting, you can address touchy subjects like the Holocaust or slavery or race or, or gender issues um, in a way that's not, you know, as threatening as just getting immersed in a, in a Tarantino film. Um, the other thing I would say is- You don't I, have to watch, you don't have to watch Django Unchained for your history lesson. Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, good comparison. And the last thing I'll say, and then I want to let you guys react or, or weigh in, is just also that I think children are infinitely wiser and more mature than we often give them credit for. And if you have kids who have access to TikTok or the internet, and you think that banning mouse is going to limit the a sphere of inappropriate things in their lives, then you need to take a, a look at what they're looking at on their devices all day. Because I think kids already have access to a lot of materials that are way beyond what parents know or understand. And I also think kids inherently understand things like death and darkness and fear um, and issues that are challenging more than we think. And I think we can engage them. I think they're looking to us to engage them and help them understand those topics, not just to bury it and never talk about it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say the same thing is that um, oh, we use the, the term children, but you know, people, middle school age uh, students, high school age students, I think are very capable of having these conversations. And some of the best teachers that I ever had um, were not ones where I was just taking their words as gospel, but they were they were the ones that were allowing the classroom to work through things as a group, as a community. And so if we're if we're discussing a book, we're discussing a film, then we're we're bouncing things off of each other. We're challenging each other's ideas. Uh, one classmate says something that I disagree with, and I'm able to to refute what they're saying, and and we have a back and forth. Those were the classes that I always left just feeling better. I was like, we, we figured out how to work through something. And the problem with this is that 
think the people that are so concerned about these topics and making sure that even um, minor discussions about them aren't happening is that they think the best way to protect their truth is to keep it from being challenged. That just leads to a brittle, a brittle truth. And I, I wish parents luck parents that are in support of these types of things of these bannings and, and making sure these conversations don't happen. I wish you luck at future Thanksgivings when your sons and daughters and whoever go to college and start to start to learn about some of these things or have uh, friends or become friends with with members of the LGBTQ community or, or people of color. And, and they get to learn about how they grew up and then they're going to come back and say, why? Why didn't you walk with me through any of these conversations? Have fun with that. Um, because if you're not going to allow the teachers to have it, and then you're not going to take any of the responsibility in discussing um, the truths of our history, um, they're going to find out about it, like you said, one way or the other. And they're going to be deeply, deeply disappointed that you were so scared to have these conversations with them. They're going to feel like you didn't trust them, that you didn't trust them to to engage in these conversations, that you didn't trust them enough to, to walk alongside them through some of these difficult uh, truths. And they're going to hold that against you. We're not, we're not giving them the tools to be able to have these tough conversations. It's really, I don't know. I feel like a lot of parents are in for a rude awakening. Well, we have a, I want to let Anthony jump in, but we have a clumsy, I just want to, we have a clumsy system in place right now, even with the MPAA of like rating systems of films that acknowledges, I think in some way that um, you could have a G-rated movie like Charlotte's Web where there's death, you know, or something happening, but you can have that all the way up to R. And so there's an appreciation of like, it's not necessarily that topics are prevented from ever being addressed, but there's like age appropriate ways to engage with a certain topic from G to PG to PG-13 to R. Um, so, you know, I, I would also just mention the book um, Educated by Tara Westover, if, if you guys haven't read it, but it's a real life example. It's a, it's a memoir of a girl who grew up in a, highly religious homeschooled family and, you know, eventually goes off to public college and talks about being so embarrassed in her college classes. She had never heard of it, didn't know what the Holocaust was. Um, so I think it, yeah, I just think it is challenging to say that you can't teach kids these things because they absolutely need to know them. But Anthony, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, okay. I'll get my initial thought in a second, but you triggered something for me, Beth. You're right. Charlotte's web is a great story to introduce young kids to death, so to speak. And then you have a monster calls mm -hmm. or I slay giants, which is more of a middle school type of thing. And then, right. You can all, you can find ways to talk about the topic. Um, it doesn't mean you have to avoid a topic that's sensitive or serious. There's ways to, to navigate that. Um, what I was going to say about the previous comment, I have been having more and more conversations with parents whose kids are coming home from college and saying to them, how did we not talk about this? Or how did I not know about this? And there's a sense of betrayal, um, like didn't understand the world. And I even think for me, I, I grew up in a pretty good experience in terms of my home and my church and things like that. For me, it was a lot of um, church world was small. Like I was, I grew up in a very particular tradition. And as I got older and began to make friends who came from other Christian traditions, I had to wrestle with that. Like, how did I not know? There was a much broader spectrum of believers than I thought when I was young. And so it's, it's as if everyone is going to wrestle with that at some point. And I, I suspect we as parents have been tasked with how to help our children build the muscle they're going to need 
Uh, and that's a gradual process. Just working out is probably a good analogy. It's a gradual process. It takes years to get to where you want to go. Yeah, it was actually um, my wife and I are about to make a move. And I was talking with my dad, seeing if he could bring his trailer up. And he mentioned the last time that he helped us move when he brought his trailer up. And he said, oh, yeah, that was um, that was the three hour drive where I, I uh, talked politics the whole time and tried to get you to vote opposite of what you were going to vote. And um, I was joking. It, it was not something that I hold against him. Um, but that was that I remember that as a difficult conversation. And I joked with him and I said, yeah, I think I blocked that out. Um, but what it was is it was the beginning as difficult as that initial conversation was because we we were on polar opposites um, of who we were going to vote for is that it was the beginning to a more robust conversation in the future. And we've had that set off a running dialogue when he could he could share with me his idea of who he thinks I should vote for. And I can uh, in some way say, I think that that's uh, idiotic and here's why. Uh, and he can keep doing the same thing to me. It, it, it starts off. It started off rocky. It really did. And I think that we kind of held some things against each other for a while. And then you get to go home, you get to cool your jets, you get to say, okay, well, this is obviously still someone that I value and I want to continue to do life with them and have conversations. We're not just going to stop talking to each other. You don't want to have to censor yourself and, and um, avoid certain topics when you're around each other. It's my dad and I'm his son. And we don't want to just clam up anytime politics comes up, right? One of us has to leave the room. That's not the way we're going to do it. And so we had to figure out how to meet each other in these conversations. And yes, it, it started out rough, but it's gotten so much better. And I think that that's, that's the way that a lot of these things should be going is that there is going to be some difficulty. I mean, if you have an 18 year old student who um, parents keep telling them that, that uh, CRT is bad and racism isn't real anymore. And we took care of that a long time ago, there's going to be pushback in your class. And that conversation will be rough at the beginning, but through continued interactions, it gets better and better and better. And that's how we have these, these just vibrant conversations in community, I think. And so that's, that's what I want to see continue to be able to happen. But I think that we're removing the footing for those even uh, early stage conversations to happen. Yeah. I think there's a difference between a student or a child being terrified and uncomfortable. Like I don't think it should be the goal of education to make kids feel 100% comfortable 100% of the time. In fact, I think it's probably the opposite that, and especially when you go to the, you go to the collegiate level, it's definitely the case. I mean, there are a lot of uh, you know professors at the college level who will specifically try to challenge things that they think are, are rooted in your assumptions or your biases or whatever to kind of ferret those and challenges. And again, that can scale up. You don't need to be like challenging a kindergartner on their <laughs> theories about race or religion or whatever. But certainly as you get older, that's going to be formed more and more. And so this idea that um, we can't talk about topics simply because they're uncomfortable or a student might feel bad about, for example, being white I think the goal of educators is to navigate those conversations and to deal with those feelings of comfortableness, because I think to Taylor, your point, I think they're going to come up no matter what, um, as an adult in college, wherever it is. And so again, giving students the tools to do that, I think there could be some flexibility. And I guess, uh, Anthony, I'd be curious what you think about this. I I'm, I'm comfortable with a, like a little flexibility in curriculum, I guess, versus the library. Like I think for example, mouse was banned from the Tennessee 
curriculum, but I don't think it was removed from the school library. I was doing some fact checking on that just a second ago. I still don't think that's a great move, um, especially because like the reasons for removing mouse were nudity and they're mice. Like they're, they're not humans. <laughs> they're mice. So I found that a little suspect, but at least it was available in the library. And I would certainly, I I'm definitely against any sort of banning of books in libraries. I, I absolutely think students need access to those resources, whether it's a public library or a school library curriculum, I think should be set by schools and teachers working in tandem with parents. Parents can go to curriculum meetings. They have them publicly for school districts. Yep. You, you can weigh in. I do not think that that should be set at the legislative level, especially in the sort of sweeping mm. censorship type of way that we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, so I've been thinking of kind of a broad thought about everything we've been talking about, going back to the discussion of Joe Rogan. And I think this has come up on our podcast before. It's, it's just a comment about freedom. And so this is my thought that freedom is only going to be as good for us as our integrity and our intelligence. So thinking of Joe Rogan again, um, this could go for anybody. I don't mean to pick on Joe Rogan here. If you're going to listen to a two hour, three hour interview with someone, there has to be some degree of intelligence that you bring to it to be thoughtful, to think about how you need to fact check, to be able to filter, to, to find yourself inclined to pursue other voices or sources to see if what you're getting is accurate. Um, even the ability to think critically and rationally. So intelligence is part of it. And I don't mean to dismiss um, those who have some type of developmental issue that makes it hard for them to think critically or intelligently. I'm just saying with what you've been given, right? Um, and the other part of them is just uh, integrity. And that is, do we truly desire to pursue for truth? Do we actually consider that the way in which we use our freedoms, even if we're free to do it, could have a really significant ripple effect on people? Like, we've got to be careful about what we do with what we're allowed to do. And so going back to that, it feels to me like if we're a culture that values both integrity and the pursuit for truth and, um, shoot, what was the second thing I said? Integrity and intelligence. Uh, I can't remember my own quote. Uh, I feel like if we don't value both of those, I don't see how conversations end well, because either we won't actually value finding truth, we'll just want to live in an echo chamber, or we're just not going to have the ability to know how to filter and away the things that come our way. And I don't know where that breakdown happens. And, and I say that as someone who I know has to work on both of those things, I don't need to say it from a pedestal. I, I just think without it. I feel like I've said this too many times today. We're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I mean, as I think we're, we're probably wrapping up, but like, to me, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing there. Right. Because like, I was thinking about that same thing with Joe Rogan or, or, you know, any other controversial issue that you might take any controversial speech, whether it's Fox News, CNN, whatever you think might be biased or skewed. So, you know, part of it is like you said, I, it, it shouldn't be a problem to have free speech in a society where the population is wise and discerning because they, in the arena of ideas, you know, people who are applying reason and logic and science to all of these schools of thought and are doing so with integrity, like you said, and intelligence to whatever degree that exists within each individual, 
um, then these ideas will die out on their own or be shot down by their own or their someone like Joe Rogan won't get a footing in the popular culture in the same way because his ideas are just rejected. So what do you do though, if it's clear that that population doesn't exist <laughs> and in, in their shows like Joe Rogan's ceasing to, con or, or contributing to the dumbing down of the populace, like, you know, that's where the chicken egg comes in for me. It's like, is he making people stupider um, and making them thus more um, unable going forward to discern between good and bad ideas. And if we continue to allow unfettered platforms for misinformation, does that negatively affect the population or do we just have to trust people to know how to sort through that or want to? Because that's part of it, too, is I think sometimes people know better, but they want to believe what they want to believe. Um, that's where, where I struggle. I think it's chicken and egg. And I'm not saying, I guess, again, because I'm generally on the side of free speech versus censorship. I don't think like you have to muzzle someone like Joe Rogan. I do think, again, because it's private, it's okay to put um, capitalistic pressure on him. But I just, I don't know what comes first there in terms of how do you develop that reasoning and, and wisdom um, in the population? I think it's a, I think it's a great question. And Anthony keeps saying we're doomed. And if, if these certain <laughs> things play out, I don't know that you've gone so far as to say like, yes, we are in fact doomed. Um, I'm feeling really pessimistic. Today yes. Too. Yes. <laughs> but I think this is like our window where we have to seriously be thinking about those things that you mentioned and start exercising them. Um, because if this stuff is happening now and our idea of how to um, combat other speech is just through domination rather than, um, better speech and, and bouncing the ideas off of each other, then it is going to get worse and worse. And it's going to be harder and harder to do because, um, I get, I, I just feel like if you, if you hide these things or you ban these things, as much as we think we can access it, if it, um, if it be starts to become less and less of a mainstream conversation, it, it is going to get more difficult to have nuance and an understanding of how these things impact the world. Um, you know, me just learning about black wall street within the last couple of years, do you know what a service it would have done to, to my entire view on the world? Had I learned about it 15 years earlier than I did. And so if we hide these conversations and people aren't able to figure out where they're taking place, um, then we do run the risk of, I think this major dumbing down where it's just domination. And we're going to, we're going to use the tactics that we want to use because we know that if we don't use them, they're going to be used on us. I would love to give Anthony the last word on this today. So I, what I will say, and then I'm going to turn it over to him would just be, I think he made a really good comparison earlier about a muscle. And I think the fact that we have so many people that venerate Joe Rogan shows that we've got a lot of underdeveloped muscles. <laughs> in this country. And I think stripping, you know, educators of the ability to help children develop those muscles is only going to make that problem worse. Kind of what you were saying, Taylor, like we have to teach children how to engage with difficult subjects in a, a wise and reasoning and compassionate way. And if we don't help them develop that muscle, they're going to go in the world completely unprepared. Okay. So I get the final word. Okay. This is where I'm landing today. I think that being seen and being heard is often experienced as being loved. Mm -hmm. And if we are reluctant to see and hear those around us and see and hear how history has shaped them, that I think we should not be surprised if they 
experience our presence in their life as unloving or uncaring. And because I think it is crucial that we love each other. I think it is crucial that we see each other and hear each other. It doesn't even mean we necessarily have to agree that uh, just because someone has experienced something a particular way doesn't guarantee that's the way it ought to have uh, been experienced necessarily. I mean, we all bring baggage into situations, but a minimal first step is to simply take the time to see people and hear people and let them know that they are noticed, that they have value, that they are worth our time to get to know and understand. And I think that translates into a sense of being loved. And I, it's hard for me to value something more in that in the world. <laughs>